Welcome to Killer Bees. This is not a Wu-Tang podcast. No, this is a podcast in which we profile some of our favorite B-movie and genre film stars. That's right. My name is Garrett Smith. My name is Tori Potenza. And if you're hearing this, it's because our first few episodes were recorded before we knew what our podcast was called. Yep. Or before we had any social media. So you'll hear us say a lot of stuff that either isn't true or... Not real yet. So. Yes, uh, but now it's real. If you're but now this, it's real. It's real. Yeah. Uh, you can find our podcast everywhere at Killer Bees Podcast. That's Killer BS Podcast. Um, Instagram, Twitter, we're all over the internet. And um, we're now part of the Movie John Network. Yes. So uh, definitely follow Movie John on social medias as well as uh, the Movie John Podcast Network. Yep. You can go to moviejohn.com for this podcast mm-hmm. and a bunch of others. Yeah. And uh, we also just want to quickly give a shout out to uh, the folks that helped us with some of our music, uh, which uh, I'm lucky enough to have friends, uh, Christine and her partner, Pat, uh, who did the intro music for the podcast, as well as Alex, uh, who is the co-owner of A Novel Idea on Passiunk uh, in Philadelphia. Does Alex have a last name so people can look him up? Alex Snyder. Uh, So he is a really great graphic designer. Uh, He does all the graphic design for the bookshop uh, that he co-owns and has done uh, tons of other work for other folks. So we're very lucky to have these talented people who uh, did the music and art for us because uh, those are things we can't do. Yeah, so <laughs> thank you to them and yes. uh, enjoy the show. Thanks. Welcome to B-Roll, the podcast about our favorite uh, B-movie actors. And we will clarify all of that almost immediately. My name is Garrett Smith. My name is Tori Potenza. And uh, this is our brand new podcast that we're starting together from Ghostwood Studios, the house that we bought together this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very excited to do this with you. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, about time that I guess we got around to doing a podcast together, Of our own, yes, because we both individually have podcasts. I host a show called I Like to Movie Movie. And I am one of the hosts of Butter With That. Yes, uh, but uh, we're coming together for a show that we are currently referring to as B-Roll, the B-Roll podcast. Um, I don't know if we're going to stick with that name or not. That was something I came up with this morning as we were ramping up to try and record this. Coming up with names is hard. It is. One of my other pitches was Outside the Actor's Studio, which I still think is funny, but also a terrible name for a podcast. I think you would have to do an impression of what's-his-face the whole time. What's his name? James Lipton? Yeah. Is that his name? Mm-hmm. It's, but the problem with that is, you know, Will Ferrell has a famous impression That's of that thing. character. So it's like you can't really do that and be funny because there's someone else that already has done yeah. that and was and funny I also about it. Only only ever picture Will Ferrell. Yeah, I don't even. I and don't, not even James. I know. Lipton. I don't. Whenever, even when I'm watching actual episodes of Inside the Actor's Studio, I am just like I'm somehow face blind to actual James Lipton and just picturing and hearing yep. the uh, the Will Ferrell version of that yep. character. That's that's it. Yes. Um. So yeah. Uh. That's all to say that. This might change by the time we actually release these episodes. Yeah, we're going to bank some of these, and uh, then, you know, eventually uh, uh, this will start coming out, and maybe it'll have a different title by then. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, so we wanted to focus on, um, you know, some of our favorite B-movie actors, and I guess, you know, a better way to say that, too, is just, like, genre actors. Yeah, Um, I I feel the need to clarify this because I feel like there are so many nerds on the internet that will come for us if we... 
don't clarify that i understand that b movies are technically a, an actual thing and that like i you know you you would be wrong to for instance this is a conversation you and i have had yeah you would be wrong to say that like kurt russell is a b movie actor because kurt russell uh, you know the, at least the movies you and i are thinking of that we would maybe want to talk about kurt russell in are not b movies in the sense of like cheap not made by studio you know like but um, uh, I think for you and I, B-movie is just a sort of categorical, like mm-hmm. many genre movies are what we, you know, monster yeah. movies to me are B-movies, even if they spent $100 million yeah. to make it. And the people we're focusing on, at least for right now, yes. are mostly like the actors who have gained, I guess, fame within the genre, but aren't necessarily bigger movie stars like Kurt Russell. Right. Like we will probably not talk about, like maybe eventually we will get to Kurt Russell, but I don't think we are going to, uh, you know, talk about, he's not somebody on our list to talk about soon because. I mean, we would love to talk about Uh, Kurt Russell. Of course, of course. (laughs) And he's done plenty of the type of genre movies that I think we're going to focus on. But uh, our focus, uh, at least for, I think the majority of the show is going to be I guess what we would consider like not maybe lesser known if you're like again like a genre fan mm-hmm. but you know these are not A-list movie stars yeah. is maybe how we would say it. and by the way we don't mean any of this to be insulting either this is Toy and I are huge fans of this stuff. Oh yeah, I mean we we started the we decided to start this podcast because we're watching genre movies all the time. Yes, and so many of these people are people that I know for me at least in the last couple of years I've like just started to learn who they are because I started recognizing them right. in all of these genre movies. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, somebody we would like to do upcoming is uh, Jill Sholin, who we just started. We uh, we just had a weekend where we ended up watching like four Jill Sholin movies yeah. like back to back basically, and we were like, oh, this is all the same actress, and we liked her, and we were like, oh, okay, and so it became interesting to like try and track down more movies that they were in and learn more about them. So yeah, and I mean, just from the research we've done so far, these people are like incredibly interesting. Yeah. So we like wanted to delve into like what their life was like, what their movie careers were were like, and I guess you know kind of like the legacy they left for um, all of us genre fans. Um, yeah. Because a lot of these people are also like pretty accessible or were pretty accessible. Um, and like, you know, go to the festivals yeah. and do interviews and podcasts and like are beloved to the people who like really love these genre films. Yeah. I mean, like a big goal for this show for me would be to maybe get some of these people onto the show at some point. Oh, um, I have a wish list of people that I would love to talk to in person. I, I think you're right that some of these people are probably fairly accessible accessible yeah uh and would be fun to to talk to yeah um but yeah so i mean i think the idea the kind of format of the show loosely will be that we'll just profile these people we've just sort of uh done our uh, i mean what all podcasts now are are fully just internet research based so we are no better or worse Mm -hmm. we are uh using our good friend the google tool yep uh and doing some research and uh we're just going to profile some of these actors that we're becoming like big fans of as we sit here on our couch during a pandemic and just catch up on everything we can find on streaming services and you know as an out-of-work historian it makes me feel like i'm using a little bit of my research brain that i typically wouldn't use or just use whenever we're talking about movies that we're watching yeah also i don't want to miscredit anything on this show uh tori is doing you know 95 percent of the research that you will hear on this show and i am um uh 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 I was going to make a joke about, I don't need to make that joke. I am playing video games on our couch and then occasionally, you know, looking at research and going, mm, yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, adding a Google search or two to it. 
um, this is uh, this is Tori's baby that I am happy to be along for the yeah. ride on. And I'm, I am glad you are, are here with me doing it because yeah. I've been, uh, you know, kind of playing with this idea for a couple months. So now yeah. it's like cool to actually have it in action. And especially since both of us have more like free form movie podcasts yes. where we just kind of talk about whatever movies we feel like talking about. It's yes. cool to have a focus and like do a little bit more of like the research and it's so far been very fruitful. I agree. I mean, we, for this first episode we're going to do, we ended up watching like a bunch of movies that I might not have sought out otherwise that uh, I was pretty pleased with to have watched. Um, so I'm pretty excited. Yeah. So for our uh, first, I guess we should say episodes, because uh, this person has uh, 197 film credits. Yes. Uh, well, film and TV. Uh, so we want to split this one in half uh, because they have such an extensive career even though i i mean we've probably only actually seen a handful of his movies yeah which Um, we might as well just say his name and let people know what we're diving into yeah so uh we decided we wanted to do john saxon who uh unfortunately died uh earlier this year very sad yeah yeah um so definitely like a big loss to the you know just film community at large. Yep. Um, but, you know, a lot of genre people obviously were very sad uh, about this particular loss. Yeah, I mean, John Saxon, if you're not familiar, is like, he's a huge name in the sort of like genre, I don't know, B-movie as we're calling it, corner of, of films. Um, you know, the thing that I think maybe most people would know him from is he is Nancy's dad in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, but he's in tons and tons of stuff, which we'll talk about including a favorite of Tori and I's um, Black Christmas. He plays a very similar character Mm -hmm. in in Black Christmas. Um, But yeah, I mean, he had a career that spanned like 50 years and uh, is, um, you know, 197 credits to his name. So we're going to split it up into two episodes. Um, But he's just a favorite of Tori and I's. He was like kind of the, ultimately the inspiration for the show, I would say, is, you know, realizing how often he kept coming up for us as we watched stuff and how much we liked him every time we saw him and stuff. Mm -hmm just sturdy reliable you know like could have been and nearly was i mean he was nominated for a golden globe i think at one point in his career yeah early on like in either the 50s or the 60s yeah Yeah. um so you know i think could have been like a a sort of like big top of the line actor um yeah and but uh you know uh was more of a journeyman and uh had kind of a cool career because of it yeah he did a lot of a lot of interesting things and a lot of weird things yes. and uh we will you know try to highlight as many of those as possible but with such a large career we've kind of just like plucked out like some of the more uh interesting gems yeah we uh, just dove into stuff that we were like oh that sounds cool yeah. like anything that he was in that we were like that sounds neat we, yeah. we watched it and uh so yeah we i don't know we probably have I would assume we've seen like maybe a dozen of his movies or something, which is a small drop in this huge bucket. Yeah, it's insane. uh, It'll give us, I think, plenty to talk about as we go through his career. Yeah, cool. Um, So yeah, let's uh, let's get started on talking about John Saxon. Please. Um, So John Saxon uh, was born uh, Carmen or Orico, I think is how you pronounce it. Orico. Orico. Uh, on August 5th, 1936, in Brooklyn, New York, um, his parents were Italian-American, um, and um, they were immig- they were immigrants from Italy, yes. um, and he ended up growing up in Brooklyn. Um, his film career itself started uh, when he skipped school to go to the movies, uh, which is a thing that I think we've probably all done. 
Um, I think especially city kids, right? Like that. Yeah. I think that's like an easy quote unquote an easy thing. Like if I were to have done, I did not skip school to go to the movies other than like when my parents were like, we are taking you out of school so that you can go see a Star mm-hmm. Wars that's coming out in, you know, 2001 or whatever. I definitely did, but I had to like take a bus to get to That's the what I mean. Movies. Like there, I yeah. would have had to, I don't know, at 12 years old, like walk miles upon miles yeah. to the nearest, you know, because I grew up in the suburbs. But I think like a city kid, like I, probably yeah. a fairly common experience to skip school and go to a movie. For sure. Um, so yeah, he went to the movies, um, he went to the Times Square Theater, and was spotted by a modeling agency representative, um, and was featured in the magazine Modern Romance. Got those eyebrows. I know, one thing that I think is really funny early on is, uh, how, I mean, he kind of gets typecast a lot, uh, in different parts of his career. Yeah. Uh, but specifically, I mean, you know, he was a very good looking man, um, throughout his life. Um, but. He looks the same, like. He looks pretty much the same. We watched a pretty early movie of his a week or two ago, and like. He looks identical on that to what he does yeah. in New Nightmare, which is one of his like late career it's movies. Um, uh, yeah, he just he looked this, but like again, like but like a good looking, you know. Mm-hmm. But he's got these strong eyebrows. And he has a very distinct like smile. Yes. Yeah, I feel like mouth is a weird thing to say, but it's like just his. He like, has a distinctive mouth. He has a distinctive mouth. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, he he has this kind of like brooding look to him that yeah. was even like more intense when he was like a young man. For sure. Um, yeah, we were surprised at uh, what what movie am I thinking of? The Baba one we watched, right? The girl who knew too much. Yeah, or Evil Eyes. It's uh, I think was the American title. Right. Yeah. yeah. He like he's got some fucking sex appeal in that movie. Oh yeah. Which like is not something I had necessarily thought of in association with him basically coming to him as like father roles right like i when yeah. i am meeting him he's and like, like playing as a cop a, a, a lot father of the time. and a cop yeah and an authoritarian role you know yeah um yeah it was interesting seeing him as a sort of sexy young mm-hmm. horny character you know oh my god yeah we'll talk about that movie when it, we get yeah. there but he's very horny in that yeah, movie yeah, yeah. and it sounds maybe similar to some of his other roles too early on in his career yeah um, but yeah, it makes sense to me that like a modeling agency saw this. Uh, oh, know. yeah. I was just like, we got to scoop this guy yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, he looks and, good on camera. Oh, yeah. Um, and then from there, it's said that um, one of the photos um, came to the attention of Henry Wilson, a Hollywood agent. And at 17, uh, John Saxon went off to Hollywood for a screen test. Um, yeah. He fudged his age on the contract, so he looked like he was 18. It's so funny. I feel like uh, I have, you know, I listen to lots of podcasts and profiles of actors and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there are, like, many, like, movie stars that, like, got started, like, too young by just lying about how old they yeah, were. Yeah, for sure. Which I imagine is not possible now. I can't imagine it's right? possible. You probably have to give them your social security number to like be in a movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, it's funny though. Cause it's like, you know, pe- you know, I feel like the most relatable thing for us is like, I don't know, trying to get beer at a young right. age or cigarettes or something. Right. It's like, man, I can't imagine trying to like lie to like a Hollywood agent about my age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a, uh, that's how he got to Hollywood. Um, yeah. so he did a screen test. Um, he did a, a scene with an actress at Universal, and they said, okay. Uh, and then he signed a contract um, and 
what he recalls from one of the interviews I read was that um, it was $150 a week for 40 weeks a year. Um, Saxon spent 18 months at Universal before the studio first used him for any film, which is crazy. That is so wild. I mean, that is no money. Yeah. it's That is making no money. Yeah. And I, I did. I So this was what sparked me to do like a little bit of research, um, which... Uh, where did I even put it? I don't remember where I put my research, Tori. This is this is bad of me. Oh, no. oh yeah, here I got it. Um, yeah, because right up here we had an, another note about his um, Universal contract. Um, but yeah, so like it, the studio system when he starts, like he, you know, it's the 1950s, I guess. Yeah. Right, is when he's getting into movies. Mm-hmm. That's like actually kind of the end of the studio system. Interesting. The studio system like kind of collapses basically by the 60s. Mm. Um, and, and so, but what the studio system is, I did some research on this because I was like loosely familiar with this, but yeah. I wanted to kind of know more for this. Um, basically, it was a time when the studios owned everything, the means of production and exhibition. Mm. So they also owned the movie theaters, which came to an end with like a uh, a, a Supreme Court case in 1948. Mm-hmm. They had there was like an antitrust suit that have, that basically made it so that they could no longer own movie theaters of their own, which is actually literally in contention again right now. I believe this law was just overturned recently, and studios oh. are now trying to get now. I mean, the pandemic just happened, so like movie theaters are going away but this is one of the futures people see is because i was just thinking that like is that a future for movies overturned <laughs> yeah studios are are likely and have already started to like buy some theaters up that's interesting because like i've been to the ifc theater in new york mm-hmm. so like was ifc able to just play their own movies or did they like have to play other movies because of that like that's very interesting right. i don't know exactly how all of this stuff uh-huh. works but like Definitely, this is a thing that, like, some that, uh, and I don't know enough to say one way or the other, but people will tell you it's like kind of dangerous to get back yeah, into for sure. them owning the exhibition as well as the means of production. Well, especially um, for because talking it means about they smaller own, movies. Exactly. They yeah. own the screens then. And so, yeah. what are they going to play on the screens? The stuff they've made. Yeah. Like, it's um, hard enough seeing cool, like, independent stuff in a lot of cities. And we're really lucky to, at least right now, have the Ritzes, which will hopefully last throughout the pandemic. But, right. Right. Yeah. Um, but so in a world where this studio is in a world where they owned all of that stuff, the studios basically had talent on contract. This happens sometimes still. Mm. Like you'll you'll hear about filmmakers being under contract to make like three movies for Universal Studios or something like that. Mm-hmm. It still kind of happens to some extent, but not to the degree that he started his career in. Yeah. Like when he started his career and what they're referring to is like he was under contract with Universal where it was like you are only going to make Universal movies. You will be on our lots where movies are constantly being produced. We can plug and play you from production to production mm-hmm. as we need you. Because we are just paying you $150 a week for 40 weeks. And that's not necessarily to work on this particular movie or this particular movie. you know. So now, again, a contract now, it's like even though it might be a contract for three movies with mm-hmm. Universal, it's like you know that director is under contract to make these three specific productions with not like do you know what i mean yeah it's like, or like actors are like oh like you have to be in all of these like seven marvel movies right, or whatever right, right, yeah. yeah yeah so oh, that's it, interesting. yeah it's it and now again it's like marvel is sort of the current iteration of this right like this disappears in the 60s as we get into more auteur driven cinema and directors are kind of like making their own movies for studios as opposed to under contract mm-hmm. with the studio blah 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 now we're back to Marvel has its own studio and has these actors under contract. Like, 
there there are i i mean i was enough of a movie nerd within the last decade to be following the trades as Mm -hmm. we knew that robert downey jr was under contract for this many marvel movies so the fact that he's in this upcoming spider-man movie means he's actually fulfilling one of those movies on his contract Mm -hmm. what does that mean for the next avengers movie is he actually going to be in it or not like you know i kind of remember some of that yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's it's just an interesting kind of like piece of hollywood history to me the way these contracts come about and stuff and it's interesting that he starts his career as this system is kind of like crumbling actually yeah you know for sure um but yeah i mean he it does seem like he had an interest in acting anyway um one of the notes i have is that he went to a like acting school in manhattan i assume before he went to hollywood yeah um and he worked with the famous um acting coach stella adler yeah um, which is kind of cool. She's like a huge, like I, I was a theater kid growing up mm. and I'm not enough of a theater nerd to like really know her name beyond her name. Yeah. Um, but I know she's like a, one of the big sort of like acting theorists, oh, cool. you know, that uh, a lot of people, she's like one of the schools of thought on acting mm-hmm. basically comes from Stella Adler. Okay. Sweet. Um, so his first role, uh, which he was uncredited in was in 1954 called It Should Happen to You. And also the, I guess, original Star is Born that had Judy Garland in it. That's wild. By the way, I don't even think that's the original Star is Born. Oh, really? Would it blow your mind to find out that the one that came out this year is like the third or fourth remake No, I that knew movie? that, but I thought like there was one in the 50s, maybe one on like the 70s. I think there's one going all the way back to the 30s. Hold oh, on. wild. Uh, yeah, 1937 is the first one. So the Garland one is 1954. Which would be, I guess, the first remake of A Star Is Born. That's such an odd movie that to be like, Wild. we have to do this movie over and over again every like twenty years. Especially because it there is a sort of time and place thing about that story mm-hmm. that makes kind of less and less sense the further we get away from it. Yeah. Um, which I understand is one of the things that makes the Cooper one interesting, but I don't know. I might watch that movie. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll I don't know. There's so many genre movies to watch. I know. <laughs> um. So then this is kind of when it sounds like he starts to get like typecast. Um, So in the 50s, he starts getting roles in like rock and roll rebel movies, they call (laughs) them, Um, which like aren't really. I've seen some movies like that. It's not really my like my genre. So I like don't really like watching them. My experience with that genre is David Lynch's use of that iconography in his own movies. Oh, that's interesting. I know. I've never seen an Elvis movie. Uh, You know what I mean? Yeah, I haven't either. But I've seen like, I mean, I watched a lot of Mystery Science Theater. And so they did a lot of those like 50s, like rock and roll like movies. Like all the kids are like beatniks and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it, it makes sense that he's this kind of like brooding, like dark haired, like Italian man that he, gets cast in these roles he totally makes sense to yeah. me is that especially because like he is such a commanding screen presence i think oh, uh, yeah. pretty immediately too um yeah i could see him really working in, uh, yeah. in that kind of stuff i would like to see one of those you know it's like that that is kind of a genre of movie that i am not again not yeah. terribly familiar with beyond lynch's use of that iconography mm-hmm. and that makes me want to watch some of that stuff yeah that's interesting yeah. from that perspective i'm like oh okay i might be into that yeah yeah Um, So some of the movies he was in that kind of fell under this uh, rock and roll rebel genre were Running Wild, Rock Pretty Baby, and Summer Love. I feel like Running Wild is kind of a a well-known movie. That that feels like now that feels like a title I know, but it might also just be the name of like a fucking rock song from my parents' era. You know what I mean? Um, uh, Yeah, I don't know. 
No, maybe not. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. That's all right. Um, in 1956, he has like one of his rare dramatic roles uh, called The Unguarded Moment, uh, which was a film that the marketing campaign like spotlit him and was like co-starring the exciting new personality, John Saxon. So yes. it's like they were trying to market this kid like early on. Um, and in that movie, he plays a young man obsessed with his teacher, uh, played by Esther Williams, who was a swimmer turned actress Ooh. at the time. Um, then he goes on to do movies like The Happy Feeling with Debbie Reynolds, uh, The Reluctant cool. Debutante with Rex Harrison. Yeah, I think he's like one of the male suitors uh, for Debbie Reynolds, that's which I'm awesome. really into that that's idea. Awesome. I kind of want to see it just for that. Yeah, I. That's the thing is like as we as you were like showing me some of this research, I just like basically amassed a list of stuff that oh, I'm yeah. like I wouldn't have been interested in this stuff in a different context, but like. In this context, I'm, like, very interested in yeah. a lot of this stuff. Well, I've noticed, too, like, when we, you know, we just watched, like, The Omen 2 the yeah. other night, and there was that older actress who yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, like, she's from Beetlejuice. And right. I looked her up, and she is in, like, all of these movies. But a lot of, like, those movies I don't really know. Like, there right. were tons of movies getting made in, like, the 30s and 40s yeah. and 50s. But, like, they're just movies that, like, I think i know a lot of them but there's so much more that i have no idea i think that you and i and this is a thing with our generation yeah is like pre-1960s is i guess like let i mean i'm growing more and more interested in that mm. stuff now um but uh for a lot of my you know i'm in my 30s like a lot of my life has been of less interest to me yeah um, and I'm growing more interested in it now that my film taste is really kind of like truly blossoming. I mm -hmm. feel like I feel like the older I get, the more it just kind of like expands, and, yeah. you know? Um, but uh, yeah. So a lot of this, again, a lot of this stuff will be like our blind spots. Oh, you for know? sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, I don't think I've seen any of the movies from his uh, early like fifties career. Right. No, the one that we dove into to be our early choice was of course, a Mario Bava movie. Yeah, <laughs> you know? of course. Yeah. Um, he was also in a movie called The Restless Years with Sandra D. Super cool. Um, he was in The Big Fisherman and Cry Tough, where he plays a Puerto Rican character. Uh, and I made a note here because, you know, this was a thing that happened in Hollywood. Yes. Um, and Especially I would, with, I will say, like Italian men, yeah. dark-skinned Italian men, yeah. this happened with a lot. Where they were like, oh, we can hire them to play Hispanic characters or like Middle Eastern characters or Native American characters. Um, so a theme in his career was that a lot of people thought he looked exotic and so he could play these different roles. Um, so he plays like an Indian chief on Bonanza um, to Marco Polo in the time tunnel. So like he just got typecast as so much stuff, which is for sure problematic nowadays, oh, yeah. um, which I bet is happening for, less and less. I bet meant for a lot of work for him. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. Like looking like he did in a time when the idea of, of ethnicity was yeah. literally simply that yeah. you were either ethnic you're like, or you oh you're weren't. Italian so you're ethnic <laughs> yes exactly yeah uh, and so like yeah you just he probably was able to like capitalize on a ton of work um, yeah which definitely you know seems to kind of go on into his films in the 1960s I mean we frankly we didn't stop doing this until fucking like ten years ago you know I know what I mean, like, I we, mean that's the thing yeah. like it's so like interesting how a lot of these conversations around 
race and sexual representation and all of this stuff where I'm like, oh man, this was like an early 2000s movie and they were doing this. It's like, it's crazy to me how much has changed just like in my adulthood. Johnny Depp played a Native American in a big Disney movie within the last like 10 years. And it's not that there wasn't controversy about it. There was, but they still like did it. Like a huge studio was still comfortable. Like just like, like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Which like, you know, I think one of the good things is now, like, it seems like advocates have more of a voice yeah. in that arena. And in sometimes it's just, it's kind of just happening where we're yeah. like, okay, cool, a new Aladdin movie's coming out. Right. We don't have to cast just white people <laughs> yeah, in the yeah, new yeah. Aladdin movie. Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal doesn't need to be the Prince of Persia. No, we really, <laughs> oh my God, I forgot about that. Yeah. I used to play that game on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> I like Prince of Persia. <laughs> Played that on my grandmother's uh, Windows like 3.1 computer oh, man, or whatever so they funny. were. It was just like a free game on my flip phone yeah. and I used to play all the time. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. This is dumb. Why yeah. are they making a movie about it? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so yeah, going into the 1960s, um, I feel like a lot of the movies that he's getting cast in are war movies and yeah. also like cowboy movies, yeah. uh, which was also just like what was popular at the time for like U.S. studios specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and this is, I know we'll, we'll get into this in your notes, but this is also the time when, um, you know, he's a, he's of exactly the right age and generation to basically be like, oh, there's so much work happening internationally and just like go make money and make movies yeah, other places. For sure. Yeah. Um, which, you know, also happens in the 60s for him, which yeah. is very cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the first uh, movie he does in the 60s is The Unforgiven, uh, where he played a Native American named Johnny Por- uh, Portugal, which is, is just confusing. So funny. In the <laughs> w- That is what a weird concoction of like, we need to make sure our audience understands that he ain't from here yeah like, it's just like well, who came up with that yeah, yeah. um but he starred opposite audrey hepburn um and it was a john houston western yeah that's awesome um and audrey hepburn is like one of my favorite actresses so i definitely want to see that also just because i want to now see john saxon with audrey i think that's like kind of a cool combination burt lancaster is in this movie mm. like yeah this is and that's another thing it's just like going through his career i was amazed at how many people he worked with and I like made notes for a lot of these because like so many well-known directors and actors that he worked with throughout his career that make it even more insane that he didn't become more of a giant movie star um yeah I know there's like and and yeah I mean John Huston is huge yeah you know I mean that's a name I know and like I don't really watch westerns or anything right so yeah it's yeah it's crazy that like we think of again it's like the reason we're talking about Saxon on this show is because our familiarity with him is horror from movies. like horror movies. Yeah. We know him as this like genre actor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you go back through his career and it's like, yeah, he worked with fucking like Audrey Hepburn and you know what I mean? It's like, it's like cra- yeah. Yeah. What? This guy was kind of like a major movie star before, you know, the part of his career that we know him from. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. He's like, I mean, so much of this is just stuff i didn't really know about until i actually looked it up yeah yeah this whole career um so yeah he did other westerns like the posse from hell and the plunderers great title posse from hell would watch just on the title very into it and then he also did a movie in 1962 with robert redford called war hunt okay this is available on amazon prime right now we've been like dancing around maybe renting it for the last week or two because 
the premise of this movie is the best premise for a movie of all time. Like, I need to see this movie. Yeah. So the premise of this movie is that John Saxon plays a serial killer who is like a soldier in the Korean War. So he's like using his position as a soldier to just murder people for fun. And Robert Redford comes in and like notices this is happening, but other people have been ignoring it because they're like, well, he's killing the enemy. So like, what's the problem? Which is just fascinating. And it probably has a really bummer ending, which like will be super problematic and sad maybe I but I believe <laughs> if I understood my own research about this correctly this is also the introducing Robert Redford movie Yeah which is crazy. I think this is like his first big headlining yeah. role I don't know that it's a serious first movie but I mm. I think that when I was looking it up it that this is like noted as like the like oh, introducing Robert Redford And what a combo too like they're such very distinct handsome looking men Yeah 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 uh, but yeah like what a crazy premise yeah. I like war movies are another area that like they're not totally my favorite Agreed. genre same, same. but man a war movie about a serial killer all the Hell way in yeah 100 all the way in <laughs> kind of mad that we didn't watch it before recording i know this now we're, we're just cheap it. and every time we have to rent a movie we're like i don't know three dollars we mostly are able to find the things that we need for this yeah. kind of research like because oh, we have every streaming service so like, yeah so when we have to pay for something, yeah. we're like, but we're paying for all of these services. What so we do we instead is we go to our friends at Viva Video and say, hey, do you guys have this? If they don't, they get it, and then we rent it from them. Yeah, which is better. Because yeah. <laughs> um, being lazy then supports a small business, exactly. which is the best way to go about it. Um, yeah, he, he even like has a bit role in a Jimmy Stewart movie around this time. Oh, yeah. um, but then he starts working in Italy, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, he was fluent in Italian and Spanish. Um, and his first Italian film was one called Augustino. Um, and then I have like a note from uh, one of his interviews with uh, the flashback files. Um, at the time, Hollywood was going through a crisis, but England and Italy were making a great many films. Besides, I thought the European films were of a much more mature quality than most of what Hollywood was making at the time. Um, they went places that Americans just didn't go. They found a market in places that Americans didn't care much about, which makes so much sense. Yeah, I mean, like, so this will, I guess, be some context for our potential audience, but, like, you and I have become big fans of what we consider, like, exploitation movies, um, many of which were made in Italy, Mm -hmm. um, because you and I go at all these exhumed film shows where they they showcase a lot of these. And so you and I have an affinity for some of this stuff, and actually a lot of American audiences do too, whether they realize it or not, because Quentin Tarantino has kind of made his career out of, you know, kind of uh, mimicking a lot of what he liked about Mm -hmm. um, exploitation cinema from this era. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like I, I kind of understand what he means about, like, again, it's like, so this is the 60s is when the studio system is kind of crumbling. We're getting into auteurism now. This is when, like, Scorsese and mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, um, why can't, Coppola mm-hmm. and um, um, Lucas, um, they're, like, young still. This is, like, still, like, yeah. the very, very, very early days of them, like, kind of trying to. They are going to, in the next decade kind of become the big players of like no longer do the studios control the movies we make the movies we want to make and audiences come to see those it becomes a much more like transgressive period Mm -hmm. of cinema but the 60s is this weird kind of like miasma of like the burgeoning counterculture that that will become and the end of the the sort of cult the larger culture Mm -hmm. as it was 
And so I think it's like, yeah, you, they just like went to, you know, like mm-hmm. the American cinema is like in this weird flux period where I don't really, yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's yeah. interesting that he's just like, yeah, I don't know. I saw other stuff being made elsewhere that just seemed more interesting. And, you know, it's yeah. like other Mature places in the world. Is such where, an interesting term to use as well. I mean, I think it's just like him looking around the world. And I think this was happening and just like, yeah, they're like moving further along. Yeah. That American culture is with a lot of this stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, so much of American culture is just based in like repressed yeah, emotions right. and right. feelings and sexuality and all of these things. So right. it's like, it makes sense that a young actor would want to go to other places and do you know, movies that had other subject material. Slashers will become a thing in America yeah. by like the mid to late seventies, mm-hmm. but they're kind they're kind of already making them in Italy in the sixties in the, in the form yeah. of like Giallo movies and stuff. You know, yeah, which is which is pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, so he, you know, we mentioned it a little bit, but one of the movies he goes to work on at the time um, is Mario Bava's Evil Eye, uh, which is thought to be like the film that kind of set the standard for giallo films yes. uh which if you don't know what giallo is it's like essentially like a, the italian slasher film um yeah. that have like a lot of iconic um pieces to it yeah. you typically see like the killer with black gloves yep. the you know razor blade like in their hand mm-hmm. um usually um there's like a psychosexual sort of undertone yeah. to the killings For sure. it's usually serial killers yeah um yeah and it, it's called giallo because that is the italian word for yellow and there were these like mystery novels with yellow covers mm. that were very popular in italy that sort of were the basis for a lot of these movies um, um yeah and is kind of the plot point of evil eye which we watched i guess that's why it's considered the first giallo kind of that like literally the plot is that this girl is reading giallo novels and sort of finds herself inside of one yeah Yeah. which is uh, a cool idea especially at the time and it gives it a kind of a quirky feel to it and tone um but so we had trouble finding this movie, and I think we ended up watching The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which is the Italian version the original of Italian the original Italian version of the movie, yeah. Um, so the one that was released in the United States was called Evil Eye. Yeah. I don't really know what the differences are. I didn't really look into it that well, much. Well, I mean, I didn't look into it that much, but I think in a sort of general context sense for yeah. our listeners, I mean, this is a thing that happened with a lot of these movies. Um they get made in Italy. They get imported to America mm-hmm. where they go to like the grindhouse cinemas and stuff. And uh, what's interesting is if you watch any of these old Italian horror movies, what you'll realize is that like, uh, and you can kind of notice it if you're paying attention, but like they literally like, so Saxon apparently does speak Italian, right? But he's like an American mm-hmm. actor. There were yeah. a lot of American actors in these Italian movies. Yeah. And the way they made them was they just had the Italian actors speak Italian and the American actors speak English and then they made a cut for both countries yeah. where they dubbed either or mm-hmm. for the country that it was being released in otherwise. Yeah. So like the actors weren't always even speaking the same language to each other. It's something you can kind of notice mm-hmm. when you're watching them. Um, and if you're watching the American version, you'll notice that the English actors are actually speaking and everybody else is dubbed. And if you're watching the Italian version, you'll notice the Italian actors are all speaking and yeah. everybody else is dubbed. Um, it's a weird, and usually there are slight differences in how they're edited. They often don't amount to much, but sometimes there are upwards of like five to 10 minute differences yeah. in like runtime and, and content. And there's, there's like a little bit I know about this just from watching like mystery science theater stuff again is like, there's a ton of movies from Italy that are just titled like Hercules versus yep. Hercules this. And none of them are actually Hercules movies. They're just Italian movies that they just 
dubbed over and like decided to label all of them as being Hercules because I forget what they're called like sword and sand sword and sandal movies yeah sword and sandal movies and they were like yeah all of these guys are Hercules duh <laughs> my favorite version of this because I am a big Godzilla fan yeah uh, is that I think in Germany. Uh, the Godzilla movies are known as Frankenstein movies, which is hilarious. Yeah, they just like started. Co- there's a there's one called Frankenstein Conquers the World or whatever that was like its common name around the world. But that it, it is not a Frankenstein movie. It's like a, a kaiju movie. Ooh, it's weird. Uh, but the, but uh, every just like kaiju movie that got released, I think in Germany after that is a Frankenstein type. Mm-hmm. They're just called Frankenstein versus. They're they're yeah. It's yeah. It's just a weird thing that happens with international markets because they're just trying to sell them whatever made them the most money last time, right? If last time they put a movie out and it was a Frankenstein movie, it was popular. If they have anything even remotely Frankenstein-like, which big monster, same mm-hmm. same thing, same difference. Yeah, call it Frankenstein. That made money last time. Yeah, for, it, it, you know, I I kind of get the yeah. the reasoning for it, but it's just fascinating. Yeah. Um. So yeah, like you know, this is at the forefront of giallo films and also like genre horror films at the time. Yeah, and I like this movie. Yeah, I liked this movie a lot, and I I liked Saxon in it. He's yeah. kind of he's a doctor, but also just kind of like a horny, bumbling dude that's in love with this like American tourist who is much more interested in solving a murder than yes. dating him. It seems like, but yeah, he I mean he is like horny to the point of being like dangerously horny yeah. at certain points in the movie. Do you yeah, know what I mean? There's a part where. He looks at her and she starts screaming and then they're just like kissing the next minute. Yeah. And I was like, what is yeah. actually happening? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, th- my interest in this movie was Baba, basically, because I yeah. recently watched Blood and Black Lace this year and was just like blown away. And I don't think yeah. I had seen any other Baba. Yeah, I just watched uh, Black Sunday. Yeah, uh, which I still need to see. Yeah, which was really good and has like some really crazy like practical effects in it yeah. that I didn't totally expect. That's cool. You know, because, you know, I'm so used to just watching, like, Universal Monsters movies and yeah, stuff, yeah. Um, which also have cool practical yeah. stuff. But, like, there was some, like, legitimately gross stuff in this that cool. you wouldn't really see in cool. those Universal movies, yeah. which I was, like, really into. Well, it's cool because, like, my, you know, I fall in love with Baba at Blood and Black Lace, which is this Technicolor, so yeah. you know, bright Gorgeous. movie. And uh, Girl Who Knew Too Much is uh, black and white. Yeah. Um, but really striking black and white photography, which is what I appreciated most about it, I think. The plot was, like, and I... I I feel this way about I actually really like giallo movies I've gotten very into them but I feel this way about a lot of them where it's like the plot I'm like well it's whatever it, well because you know. it's a mixture of like a slasher and a noir kind yeah. of yes, um, yes. and I know like sometimes we get a little bored with noir some I get a little bored films. with yeah yeah um, but that one felt like very noir heavy yeah, and does. yeah and I was like man like this movie feels longer than it is it's more <laughs> noir than slasher yeah. and that genre very quickly becomes more slasher than noir yeah absolutely as it develops. yeah um, but yeah I mean it's also you know the forefront of Saxon being in these like sci-fi and horror movies which he uh, does start to do more of um, as he goes into the 60s so um, you know he does a lot of World War II movies like the Ravagers but then he does sci-fi flicks like Blood Beast from Outer Space which I've never seen and I would love to Boy, again another movie that on title alone Fantastic. would watch uh, followed by The Queen of Blood like yes <laughs> please give me The Queen of Blood I was gonna say Queen of Blood sounds like something that uh, uh, you would love yeah absolutely and then in 1966 he works on Apeluso, uh playing a Mexican bandit 
that uh, working beside Marlon Brando, um, who he was often compared with because, of course, they were both like brooding Italian men. So people were like, yeah, they're the same. I believe I read that this is what he's nominated for a Globe for. Yes. I think. Yeah. Appaloosa. Um, Yeah, it's what he's nominated for a Globe for. Um, He, you know, talked about working with Brando um, and like had some interesting stuff. He mentioned like Brando was like really in it for the money, whereas (laughs) like Saxon like really took like the acting experience seriously, (laughs) which uh, seems to be like a common thread like throughout the movies he did, no matter how like cheap or weird they were. Yeah. Um, but he like tells this story about like borrowing um, Brando asking to borrow his coat and then never giving it back to him, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Uh, I really like the, like I would like to present this quote as you have it written. Cause it's just very funny to me that this is how short this whole story is. I know he was a friend. He said, I took him to dinner one night. He said, I'm going back to New York. Do you have a coat? I said, sure. I got a coat. He never gave me back the coat. <laughs> Well, that's the whole story. It's also like some like low-key like bitter shit that like I would also still be bitter yeah. at like as I'm older, but like, man, the person never gave me my book back. Yeah, like yeah. fuck that person. Yeah. <laughs> um another notable role from the sixties was a movie he did called Four Singles Only, which is essentially about a bunch of people all living in like an apartment complex for swingers. Yeah. Uh which I'm I like, like of course I can see him yep. being in that film. Especially knowing like what a brooding, kind of like hot dude he was at that time. Like, yeah, of course he's gonna be in a swingers movie. You uh you have a quote here that I wanted to to read to everybody because oh, yeah. I think it's uh pretty interesting. Uh it, this is going back to his work with Brando. And I think it's funny that he, I mean, I'm assuming that he's, this quote starts after being prompted to say this, right? Because it's funny to see this out of context, but I assume he's been prompted to respond in this way. But I like what he said. So there's one way you might compare me favorably with Brando. Just fun. I'm sure he was prompted to say that. But so we both have worked long enough to have seen what can be achieved when the medium is working at its best. And we've probably seen it at its worst. I I like this quote because I do think it speaks to like mostly what we're talking about here is that like he's one of these actors that has had such a long career and really becomes like a journeyman. He does not really become like a big movie star where he gets like totally sheltered by, mm-hmm. you know, stardom or anything. Like he he has a very long career that eventually sees him going to like other countries to make movies and yeah. stuff. You know what I mean? Um and uh, you know, uh uh, I would venture to say that if he was in Italy making movies at that time, it probably meant his career in America was not necessarily going great. Mm. Not too many people went there because they just decided they wanted to go yeah. there and make mo- He might frame it that way, but like that's not why many people mm. ended up in those countries making movies at that time. That's interesting. It's, it's usually because they were not necessarily yeah. having a ton of... But or or you know, and that's not totally true. It, you could also like make extra money by just like doing some of these quick and dirty productions in yeah. Italy or whatever, you know. But um, I I would bet that mm-hmm. he found himself there just because that was where he could make some money at yeah. the time. And that's stuff I'd love to learn more about. Like yeah. if someday someone made like a bio of him and, yeah. or something, but it's like you know because he's not someone that got to like you know total stardom. Yeah. It's not like they're is that much i mean there's like interviews and some information but there's yeah, not like wrote a the big book on sax yeah big profile biography yeah, yeah which is something you know i i would love to yeah. to have that yeah um so yeah um 
that kind of wraps up like most of his 60s work. Um, he did some TV stuff. Um, one of them was a show called The Virginian in which he appeared with a young actor named Harrison Ford in his first speaking <laughs> role. So like, again, working with all of these like either up and coming or like established yeah. actors. Yeah. And I mean, I know we'll get to talking about this probably in our second episode about him, but like, I know Heather Langenkamp saw him as like sort of a, yeah. almost like Godfather type figure. And I do wonder if, other actors thought of him that way or mm. not, you know, because he crosses paths with so many of these people. Again, it's like War Hunt ends up being like apparently like one of Redford's first role. Yeah. And it's like, you know, at that point, Saxon's 10 years into a career. Mm -hmm. you, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I wonder if he's like kind of a an elder statesman in as much as he's a journeyman I for know. some of these people. You that know? would be nice to know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. After he passed, I couldn't really find much about like other people talking about him. But Heather Langenkamp like was one of those yeah, people. Yeah. Because um, they did seem very close, which is very cute. Yeah. And I'm excited to talk about them as we get into those movies. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, then, uh, then like, as we get into the 70s, um, a lot of his work is in TV shows. Um, he did an, some episodes of Rod Serling's The Night Gallery, uh, which I kind of meant to like maybe look some of those episodes up because yeah. they at least were on Hulu for a while. I know and you're a huge Serling fan. I love Serling. Yeah. Um I read the graphic novel um that's about him um called Twilight Man at the beginning of the year. Um and also heard that Night Gallery like maybe wasn't like his favorite thing. He didn't get right. a lot of like creative power over it, which was unfortunate, but that was his post Twilight Zone show. Yeah, right? it yeah. was a uh, all in color. Um and then uh, he also played, uh, Saxon played a doctor in The Bold Ones, The New Doctors. <laughs> and it's a very funny cover of just like all these like young doctors standing next to each other and Saxon being one of them. Oh, man. What the hell is that? Is that like a soap opera? It's got to be. Because that sounds like a soap opera. I mean, it's The Bold Ones, colon, The New Doctors. I know. So it's like... There had to be other bold ones, right? Uh, <laughs> that sounds awesome. I mean, he would be good in a soap. I could For definitely see sure. him do that. He, yeah. I mean, that like that's it. Like, we haven't even, I guess, like talked about this much, but like his style of acting. Yeah. Uh, I guess part of what I like about him is that he is taking everything very seriously. Mm -hmm. Like, everything I've ever seen him in, he plays, like, very straight. Yeah. But but in that way where he's not, like, high on his own supply or whatever. You know, there's no pretension to... You know, he's just like, I'm here to work, yeah. so I'm going to do it, and I'm going to yeah. give it my all. Right. And, and so it does... But what that allows for is, like, Black Christmas, which, like, could be a really cheesy movie... He is taking as seriously as he takes anything else, mm. but I think is aware that the, it's like a, a slasher and like it, the, that on its face is a little bit silly mm -hmm. and is able to bring a little bit of kind of knowing fun to it because, right, like he just, I, I, I don't know how to describe what I'm trying to say, but he seems to understand the level at which he's working yeah and the tone of the projects he's on yeah and and never betrays that tone but also is never above it either like yeah. you know what i mean i mean i feel like if we really did a deep dive and watched like movies throughout his career yeah. like early 50s to like 
We'll get to like some of the really cheap 2000s movies he did. I'm sure he gave like the same amount of energy and effort into all of these roles that he did, no matter, you know, who he was working with, how established they were, how much money the movie was like running on. Like, I feel like he just took the, the gig seriously. Yeah. Actually, one of the ones we'll get to here in a minute will be like a good example of this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, then uh, he works on Joe Kidd with Clint Eastwood, again, working with like another. Very cool. Yeah, I very would, cool. I need to see that because I, I actually am a big Eastwood fan. I would I would probably like that. Yeah. My dad loved Clint Eastwood. I know. So I, I get it. Dad's, of course, stuff. dads love yeah. Eastwood. Um, but then in 1973, he gets to work with Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. And one of the reasons he worked on this is because he has a black belt in karate. Yeah. Which is hilarious. Um, but I, when I, I knew that he was in Enter the Dragon, because yeah. it's one of the things that pops up as soon as you open his IMDb. So yes. anytime I've looked Saxon up for whatever reason, yes. I see it. Yes. And so in my head, I always assumed that he was one of those dudes that did a lot of these movies. Right. But this is like really one of the only like martial arts movie he does. And it's with Bruce Lee. Yes. Which is wild. It's crazy. I loved this movie. Oh you my and god, I we watched just watched it for the first time. For the first time. time, like a week ago. We bought it immediately. It was a great Bruce Lee set out from Criterion uh. that I just was like, okay, dropping the money yes. on that because this movie was awesome and we got to own it. Mm-hmm. Fucking loved everything about this movie. Had yeah. never seen a Bruce Lee movie before. Guy is a fucking movie star. Mm-hmm. Can't wait to watch more movies with him. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to watch Enter the Dragon. And watch it specifically yes. with the like lens of like we we're watching, watching this to watch John, John Saxon. Saxon, but Bruce Lee is so charismatic. Yeah. And since I had never seen a Bruce Lee be- movie before, I didn't know that. Yeah, me neither. I just knew he was a great fighter. Yeah. And but he's a fucking movie star. He's a movie star through and through. Pops um, right off the screen. But all three of them pop. Um, yes. Oh man, it's him, John Saxon. And then there is a third young, um, it's like an introducing um, character. It's uh, Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly. Um, So yeah, you have like, um, I mean, um, Bruce Lee was born in the US. So he's like an Asian American man um, with John Saxon, who's like an Italian man. And then um, Jim, who is like a black man. And you have these like, it's such a diverse cast. Uh, I mean, it's this brilliant movie that's like yeah. exercising in like every, basically every subgenre of exploitation that was around yeah. at the time. It's like kind of a black exploitation movie. It's kind of a spy thriller, yeah. which like there were tons of James Bond ripoffs at this time, mm-hmm. which is like kind of what's going on. Um, it's a martial arts movie, which like uh, chop sake, kung fu. Some of these are like offensive turns now, but like there were all of these like different like genres of like basically martial arts movies yeah. that were very popular in the 70s yeah. like and it just puts them all in a blender it gets you a big actor from each of those sort of subgenres mm-hmm. and puts them in a movie together I, it's very funny to me that he's like a black belt and saxon is a black belt in karate and says he is because it's like watching the movie and i you know i think that this was common for actors at the time watching the movie i strongly get the impression that like it's not that that's not true but he's probably like a uh you know strip mall karate school i mean being a white guy that has a yeah. black belt is not the same yeah. thing as fighting with bruce lee he like bruce lee's on another fucking playing you field. watch this movie and you're like yeah you might be a black belt but you got that black belt yeah. at uh you know uh mr ryan's kung fu school of karate where he's yeah. you know uh, at a strip mall in new jersey yeah. Like you know. if he was fighting against a bunch of other white guys, probably like, man, Saxon's a great fighter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I but this so this movie I think is a great example of what I was trying to talk about with his acting, where it's Ooh, like, man. this is a patently silly movie, and he's clearly aware of that. He's like having fun being like he like I love his character in this. He's like he's a Lothario, so suave, yeah, and like pretty sexy in this movie, and and goes for the very sexy like woman that runs the gig as opposed to the women that she's trying to deliver to you know what i mean that like, scene made me like damn i know i loved that i, lo- <laughs> I loved that you know he was like no i don't want the harem like i want you yeah. and like i and and she responds so strongly to that like mm-hmm. i yeah it's like great stuff and like but he's like again it's like even though it's like silly and he's clearly aware that it's silly, mm-hmm. he's not above that either. He's still playing it straight in the way that he plays stuff yeah. straight. And it really makes it work. It like it plays perfectly into the tone of this movie. He's yeah, he's really great and really holds his own in this yeah. movie. I mean, he reminds me of like Kurt Russell in that sense, right? Yeah. It's like it's the reason Kurt Russell works so good in the John Carpenter movies, mm-hmm. is that like Russell is both playing the sort of like <sighs> to the sort of like weird comedic stuff that is just the the inherent to the premise. Yeah. But is taking it seriously. You yeah. Know? I mean, he can do the thing and then do... Uh, Big Trouble Little China. Yeah. 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 Totally different. Yeah. Big Trouble is obviously totally goofier yeah. than the thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he has a quote that says, I was putting away guys like crazy, but in order to make it look real, I damn near killed myself. Yeah. So I'm sure he was getting his like ass beat on the set. Um, and I think they only, the fight scenes he was filming, it wasn't for very long that they were doing it. So he really had to just like keep up. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is like, you know, Bruce Lee, unfortunately, like passed away. Like, I think, like before, uh, before this the, movie even came out. Yeah, right? before the premiere. Yeah. Um. So this is like, you know, top tier, like Bruce Lee, like at his best, like right before he passes away. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, Bruce Lee. There are a couple funny notes that I found. Uh, Bruce Lee trained the women playing Han's daughters so they could overpower John Saxon. There's a great <laughs> scene where he just gets like beat by a couple girls. Yeah. Um. When Saxon, when Saxon arrived on set, he thought and acted as if he was the star of the movie. <laughs> that sounds right to me. Which makes so much sense. Yeah, I mean, I even I I like the idea that like he he might not even have been totally aware that he was. You know, like the way that's yeah. phrased is that like maybe he wasn't even aware that like yeah because like I I don't know enough about this, but like. I believe this movie is like Bruce Lee's first like American production. Mm. I think that he's like starring. He's in. also speaking, um, speaking English in this film, which yes. he didn't always do. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so like, I do wonder if like Saxon is aware of Bruce Lee yeah. or if he just gets cast in this movie that this guy, Bruce Lee mm-hmm. is co-starring in, you know, yeah. like, it's it's very interesting, and I even wonder how it was presented to Saxon. You know, it's like yeah. it's very interesting. Well, and then there's a note that he kind of like negotiated in his um, contract to live through the film when one of right. the other characters does not. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is kind of interesting and like maybe a little problematic when I when you think about it. Yes, but, yeah. Uh, but it is interesting that like at least at this point, it seems like he had a little juice in being able to maybe call some shots or get his like agents to call some shots for him I do wonder if that's a little bit what we're hearing in what is being said here is that like 
you know, he, he is feeling like, oh, I'm a rising star. Mm-hmm. I, I'm carrying a little bit of my own weight around now and, and yeah. is maybe throwing a little bit of his weight around with this movie. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the following year, he works with uh, Bob Clark on Black Christmas, uh, which is also thought to be like one of the first slashers. Um, it predates Halloween. Yep. Um, and if you haven't seen Black Christmas... It is amazing. It might even be a better slasher film than Halloween. I, I go back and forth all the time. I know. On which one is my fave? Every I, time I watch Black Christmas, yeah. I'm like, fuck, I think this is my favorite. It is it is remarkably good. Um, and it's a movie that gets better every time I see it. Yeah. And he plays a he plays a cop many times. He plays a cop uh, in a lot of. But he's movies. like a very he's really good at always playing different types of cops mm-hmm. from the ones I've seen. Like in this one, he's like actually pretty funny. Like there's yeah. weird seasons of this movie where he's one of the detectives, and he and his partner keep making fun of the like fucking beat cop that yes. keeps just messing up the case. Nash. <laughs> I remember. Thank you for remembering I've seen the this name. Movie so many times, and also just like. I can hear Saxon going like Nash. Like I can like hear it, you know? <laughs> but like, I love how he's like, Oh, this isn't like, it's not just like, cool. This is my John Saxon cop. Like it's, yeah. he always ab- is able to play like kind of a different cop in the films that he, he does this in. Yeah. And I mean, I think in um, black Christmas in particular, the thing that shines through here is something that is in a lot of his characters, uh, especially at this point in his career. There is like a warm center to this cop, mm-hmm. uh, and you um, believe that he he actually cares about these girls and what's happening to them. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, you know, uh, in my experience, is not actually most women's experience with detectives that they are reporting yeah. this kind of behavior in men to. Well, and to to be so poignant in the seventies, yeah. um, and that being like a major theme of this film is so interesting yeah. because like. I mean, especially girls on college campuses, that's such a problem, getting the schools to, like, actually do something and recognize when, like, girls are in crisis. Yeah. Um, So for this film to, like, kind of point that out is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, And that always, like, shocks me when I watch this movie. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of the things that uh, attracts me to Saxon as a performer and to his character in this movie Obviously, cops are not my favorite characters and things, especially right now. Um, but uh, or just people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Is uh, he is he he's warm and he feels like yeah. he actually is doing the job that we would want a cop to do. You know, he's yeah. doing the job we would want a detective. To yeah, do. it's like the ideal yeah. version of a cop. Yeah. He's great in this movie, and I really love this movie. Yeah. Um. One of the notes I have is that the composer Carl Zittrer, um contacted John Saxon um, because they worked on a previous film together Um, and the role that he plays in Black Christmas I guess the person like dropped out or they lost the person and so he just kind of called Saxon up and Saxon was available so he filled in he's great in it he's so good good. yeah and this is again him being at the forefront of like you know he's at the forefront of like Italian slashers and then he's at the forefront of like North American slashers because this is a Canadian production Um, and in one of his interviews that I found he even makes a point that like if they made this in America this would have been like a film that had tons of sequels and instead we got tons of remakes I know which it is interesting that this is a film that has been remade three times I know 
Um, so remade twice. There are three versions. Of oh this yeah, movie. yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, there are three. Yeah, there yeah. are three total versions of yes. this movie. <laughs> yes. Uh, numbers weird. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's like I th- I find that very fascinating. And this most recent one, you know, tries to take some of those like themes of like really like the girl empowerment stuff and really like work that into its narrative yeah yeah which i mean for me i would say that that's it's not that stuff is already like on the forefront of the narrative in the original movie i think it just sort of tries to bring it into just a more like modern you know context Mm -hmm. which is the best thing about that you know we're not here to litigate that movie but the best thing about that movie is it's like socio-political commentary uh i i did not like much else about that movie unfortunately um (laughs) so yeah then the you know for the other like films he worked on around this time um he did some more films in italy including violent naples and the 44 specialist I feel like the 44 specialist is probably a cool fucking movie. Oh, it's it's got to be interesting. Yeah. Um he also did like more TV, so he did I mean a lot of these like genre actors I found have a lot of interesting like TV roles and a lot of them have worked on like the same TV shows. Uh but he was on The Bionic Woman, The 6 Million Dollar Man, Starsky and Hutch, so mm-hmm. he like really does a ton of stuff. And yeah. then the later half of his uh 70s career is a lot of exploitation movies. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this is when types. that stuff is ramping up. This yeah. is when that stuff really is like, they are pumping out yeah. these movies. So he, he is in car movies like Moonshine County Express, which <laughs> sounds hilarious. But then he's also in Fast Company, which is a early film from David Cronenberg. And one of the few Cronenbergs I'm not interested in seeing because I don't like car movies. <laughs> um, but like, it's so weird that like, th- I think this is David Cronenberg's third feature film. I want to see it. I This is a movie I want to see. I would watch it for yeah. sure because I love Cronenberg so and much. In it. And, sa- and now that I know accents in yeah. it but like car movies just kind of do nothing for me i love car movies i know you do um he did a horror film called the bees, the bees. <laughs> which has got to be great i would yeah. love to see um some action like crime films one was called the glove which i think the glove has like a really funny um oh man yeah, I'm opening IMDb up right now. Oh, yeah. A bounty hunter is offered $20,000 off the record for the capture of a very large man who dons body armor and steel-plated gauntlets for his regular beatings of some unfortunate individuals. What? <laughs> It sounds wild. That sounds incredible. I remember just seeing the cover of it and it just being a giant man in a suit. And I was like, okay, this that sounds interesting. Sounds amazing. Um, and then he works on another, like a later Western, which is kind of about like, you know, uh, a cowboy who's a little bit older and, you know, kind of towards the end of his career, uh, called The Electric Horseman, uh, which has Jane Fonda, Robert Redford, and Willie Nelson in it, uh, which is a really interesting way for him to kind of go out in the the 70s as working with all of these well-known folks. For one thing, he's working with Redford again. Redford, yeah. Which is cool. Uh, for another, The Electric Horseman has got to be one of the greatest titles of all time. I, I need mean, to see this movie because I love that there title. There are some gems uh, throughout these, like, genre, the, looking at these genre films, I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. I'm also curious if Willie Nelson still looks like a withered piece of leather in uh, 
Like if he was already looking like that in the seventies, or if that was a thing that happened after the seventies. I know it's fascinating because people like Jane, like uh, Jane Fonda and Robert Redford, I like can picture them young in an instant yeah. and be like, "Hot damn!" Like, yep. but Willie Nelson, I can only picture as an old man. Yep. Yeah, like even in Thief, he looks like he's already withered leather. Fuck, I forgot. He, yeah, I always forget he is in Thief. Yeah. So weird. Great scene in Thief. Um, um, I think, do you think, is this where we want to kind of take a break is, and split our episode? Yeah, I think this yeah. is where we want to split. Cool. Um, so then we'll do um, the 1980s through uh, the end of John Saxon's career. Yeah. Um, I mean, how did you feel about the first episode of what is currently called B-roll? I, I mean, I think I felt pretty good about yeah, it. Good about how it. did you? I felt good about it. Yeah. That was fun. It was yeah. easy to talk, uh, you know, about Mr. Saxon yeah. and... I feel like, I mean, uh, it'll be interesting. I mean, I think we'll bank a few of these, but I do feel like that felt like a pretty good format. Yeah, I agree. Right? Like to just kind of like go through it and just yeah. sort of, yeah, all right. But cool. you tell us, folks, as you uh, listen to these episodes, yeah, I mean, if um, you, uh, you like what we're throwing down. I guess we'll have to like tag like some sort of intro outro on these yeah. because we don't even have like social media set up for this yet that we can tell people to go to. Yeah, so that'll be a thing. Yeah, we'll just include that, I guess. Yeah. Like, so it's probably an intro for these early episodes. Yeah. Um, but one thing I do want to say is that when we do have social media and start posting stuff, yeah. we have a pretty big pool of people that we want to highlight for this podcast. Yeah. Uh, but it is definitely my goal to include more um, women, but also specifically POC actors and like um, LGBTQ actors. Yeah. Um, so when we have, you know, some information for contacting us, um, I would definitely love to know like what folks people could point us to Recommend that we could do some, some research yeah. on. Cause we have a list that we've been working on yeah. and we, you know, we have people that we'd like to talk about that um, uh, is already a fairly diverse list, but sure. there are, we, I feel, I feel like personally, at least me, I guess I can only speak for yeah. myself. I'm pretty ignorant to, sp- I, I think some of the history of specifically like LGBTQ people in Hollywood yeah. and stuff. So like, it would be helpful for uh, listeners to reach out and be like, oh, look into this person and this person. And, yeah, you know. that would be very cool. Because, yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think we have a pretty diverse pool, but we could definitely do better. Yeah. And I'm sure there are people that like are not even on our radar. That, yes. I mean, we love talking about people we already are into, but we also love discovering new people. Yes. So. Yeah. I mean, that was the impetus for this podcast was just realizing that we were like, there were certain people we kept coming across in all yeah. these movies we were watching that we were like, oh, we keep talking about how much we like this person. Yeah. Like, let's just press let's record on yeah. this conversation. Yeah. Uh, cool. So uh, this has been a pleasure. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, we don't even have a way to close since we don't have any, like, yeah. thing to plug or but, anything. Uh, so. But thanks for listening, guys. Yeah. Uh, I guess here, you know, we can plug, like, things that we do have and know about, right? Like, listen to my other podcast, I Like to Movie. Uh, I Like to Movie Movie. Look it up at I Like to Movie. And I'm on Letterboxd and Twitter at Philadelphia and uh, right for Cinema76.com. Yeah, and uh, I'm on the podcast Butter with that. Um, you can also find me, Victoria Potenza, on Letterboxd and, you know, the social medias. I don't do Twitter, but... You're you on know. Instagram. I'm on Instagram. Uh, and then I also write for Cinema76. Yeah. And uh, I guess tune in next. I don't even know how often this podcast will come out. So tune in next time next for time, more folks, John Saxon talk. Could we be more vague on everything? Uh, could we be roll more vague? Okay, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>